Hey there, you're listening to the Water and Music Podcast. My name is Sherry Hugh, and I'm a freelance writer focused on how technology is transforming music and culture. In this podcast, we unpack the fine print behind big ideas at the intersection of music and tech, featuring a curated slate of young innovators, leaders, and thinkers from across the music business. The goal is to get you thinking differently about how this business might work, and maybe challenge your assumptions about where music might be going. One major update for me is that I'll be speaking at the Berkeley College of Music's Valencia campus in Spain this weekend. First, I'll be giving a guest lecture about the intersection of music and gaming to a graduate music business seminar, then moderating a panel about new forms of artist monetization at the DIY Musician Conference. This will be my first time in Valencia, and I'm so excited to explore the surrounding city as well as meet a lot of current students at Berkeley. If you're listening, you'll be able to access an exclusive recap of the event on my Patreon page, which you can join for as low as $1 a month by visiting patreon.com slash sherryhu. Your support goes to keeping this podcast 100% ad-free, as well as to creating a space for publishing deeper dives on music, tech, and similar subjects that I might not get the opportunity to pursue otherwise. So thank you all so, so much again for your support. Today's featured guest is Amber Horsburgh, who's a music marketing consultant based in LA and the former SVP of strategy at Downtown Records, where she oversaw campaigns for artists like Mike Snow, Muramasa, Yacht, Goldroom, and many others. She also writes a music marketing newsletter called Deep Cuts, which provides a ton of valuable and versatile tools for understanding what exactly goes into building an effective marketing strategy and budget, whether you're an emerging artist just starting out, or someone more established who's looking to scale their brand further. The conversation you're about to hear is inspired by a blog post Amber recently wrote called Playing to Strangers, which I'll link to in the show notes for this episode, and argues that in the context of scaling an artist's brand, marketing to strangers, i.e. to people who don't know who you are yet, is actually more profitable than catering to people who already are your fans and are already loyal to you emotionally and commercially. At first, I thought that Amber's piece was the ideological opposite to what a ton of people in music are talking about right now, namely the concept of 1,000 true fans. That's the notion that you need only 1,000 fans paying around $100 a year in order to make a sustainable six-figure living as an artist. Kevin Kelly presented that theory all the way back in 2008, and in that paradigm, arguably scale doesn't really matter and strangers don't really matter either. So I immediately had Amber in mind to join an episode of this podcast so we could dive more deeply into some of her arguments. We touch upon questions like how the follower to monthly listener ratio on Spotify and other streaming services isn't always the best metric to measure fandom, how a lot of record label marketing budgets aren't actually built to scale an artist because they don't really spend that much money on reach, and how an artist can maximize their marketing to casual and lighter listeners without diluting the integrity of their core products and creative vision. There's a lot to dig into here, so let's dive right in. Amber, thank you so much for joining. No problem. Thanks for having me. So when I first read your Playing to Strangers piece, I was actually pretty taken aback in a good way because I feel like over the last couple of years that I've been writing about the music industry and like trying to meet people in this space, there's growing momentum around what seems to me like an opposite approach to what you talk about in your piece, namely that, oh, you don't necessarily have to focus on marketing to strangers or marketing to people who don't already know you. Rather, if you maintain a really core fan base and grow more organically and cater to the people who already value your work really highly and have proven that they're willing to invest more in your work, then that is the most profitable path forward. I'm just really curious to hear what the reaction has been to your piece so far, like hearing feedback from artists and others in the music industry, has it been more agreement with what you're saying or resistance um, or somewhere in the middle? Yeah, sure. And overall, it was most people have been pretty refreshed by the thinking. For those not familiar, the piece proposes that, yeah, your most profitable audiences are these light listeners, which is that people who listen to a lot of music, who listen to a lot of different artists and they go to many shows and buy merch from many, many different bands. Um, and that your marketing efforts should really focus on attracting those new and infrequent listeners of your music rather than 
lifting the consumption of your material from existing fans or super fans because with that approach and marketing to your core and marketing to existing people you can only increase consumption so much let's be real like you can only listen to so much of the same music Mm -hmm. so you need to be constantly looking at how you add new fans to your your pipeline. A lot of the thinking was built off the work of marketing scientist Byron Sharp, who in his seminal work of how brands grow, he looked at grocery products and proposed that a lot of consumers aren't loyal to like Windex or like Chobani yogurt. The person that buys yogurt in February probably won't be buying the same brand in December. And when that came out, a lot of really big brands started to shift their marketing strategies and advertising messages So I think a lot of the ad world were also keen to see how some of those principles that come out through their work also apply to the music industry and which pieces didn't. But overall, it's about like creating a more efficient marketing spend, basically, because a lot of the time, if you're preaching to the already converted, you're perhaps wasting that ad dollar on someone that's probably already bought a ticket or was going to listen to your music when it came out on New Music Friday anyway. Some of the resistors have been people that focus on artist development and building brands from the core out. But the, I mean, the piece is really talking about market share and scalability and building like big artist brands. So I think with more emerging acts or smaller acts, it can be really satisfying to go like person to person. Um, and a lot of people have found a lot of success doing that. But if you're, you know, if, if you're trying to like scale really big, the people that have those challenges and those artists found the thinking quite refreshing and was like, yes, that's what we try to do. Or Yeah, so I think it would be split down to like what, I guess, the goal of the artists that they're representing. Yeah, that's a really good point. Related to that in terms of the artist's goal in the first place, it's really telling and really important that you focus on the followers to monthly listeners ratio in terms of that being an effective or maybe ineffective measure of fandom. So in your piece, you talk about, for instance, if an artist is actively promoting a record, the follower to monthly listener ratio will go down to as low as 8%. Whereas if you're off cycle and not promoting any particular album or single, that number will go up to around 70%. I've definitely met a lot of artists who treat the follower to monthly listener ratio as their primary metric for streaming success. And so they're always trying to make that ratio as high as possible, regardless of the context, like regardless of whether they're on or off cycle. Would you say that that ratio alone paints maybe an incomplete picture of an artist's brand or what their fandom really is like? And maybe there are other metrics that one should be prioritizing in the specific goal of like building out an artist's brand and scaling it out and growing market share. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think the follower to monthly listener ratio is a far better indicator of like playlist power than streaming success. Mm-hmm. Cause if you're actively promoting a record, the streaming platforms are going to playlist your tracks as to capitalize on the interest of that music from the real world. So like how it's doing in charts, what tours are going on, festival appearances, any cultural moments or like viral trends, viral dances, they're going to jump to playlist that track because that's what the interest in, you know, in the world's happening. And then also you have labels pushing their priorities and the major labels having their specific amount of tracks that they can add to playlists per month. And then those proprietary playlists as well just have such huge listenerships because of the amount of real estate that they get on streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. So you're going to generate a lot more views. I mean, yeah, views or streams if you're in, say, New Music Friday or Pop Rising or today's top hits because of the volume of people listening to that track. But it's not an indicator of the interest in the artist. It's more about the promotion of the track. So when you're looking at off-cycle artists like Lana Del Rey at the time of writing, which was in February 2019, Lana Del Rey had about 67% share of monthly listeners to followers and Jack White had 73%. They're both off-cycle. And so their source of streams comes is far more weighted towards an individual's own library and their own playlist as well as the artist's profile. Mm-hmm. Whereas on cycle, you're going to see far more streams from algorithmic and editorial playlists. So that follower ratio, follower to monthly listeners, I think could be used as an indicator of like streaming strategy for promotion of records on cycle, but not streaming success overall. I think the better metrics, depending on the artist and the goal, is impressions and engagements. I think for emerging artists, engagement metrics are, is the most important because what you're really trying to figure out is like are the sparks that you're creating in your marketing efforts turning into flames? Like do people even care 
with what you're doing. And so that's where engagement becomes really, really critical and telling. Whereas for more established acts, you just, you kind of need to be everywhere. If you're trying to build market share, you need to be mentally more available for when people go to put on a track, they're going to put you on. So like impressions are really, really important. Like, are we everywhere? How big is this campaign? So I think those two are better suited for the success of an artist and the success of the campaign. Yeah, and related to this, especially at like the major label, A-list artist level, this pressure to kind of be everywhere. Both of us, we'd seen this report that just came out last week from Music Ally about the concept of quote unquote dry streams, which is kind of a play on words, but uh, Music Ally had defined it as streams that come without a great deal of interest in the artists themselves. And the artist is kind of anonymized in the service of a playlist and you have songs that quote unquote stream really well, but then yeah, conversion to long-term fandom and engagement is super low. I'm wondering how you might approach balancing, reaching more casual listeners and growing market share and then sustaining that market share over time, particularly if you are an artist who's just starting out, who maybe might not have that big of an audience and is trying to grow their audience more meaningfully on streaming such that listeners will actually go back to their music. Yeah, I think it's about building the discovery journey of a fan because if you look at playlists, mm-hmm. like if you are a, a, an artist that's like blessed with great playlisting and that you know the, the tracks are streaming really well, but you don't convert that, you're missing the opportunity. And a lot of artists don't get don't get that opportunity. They don't get the real estate and the love from streaming platforms. So I think if you look at it, it's like okay, you discover a track through a playlist. Can you map that consumer journey to becoming a fan? And then at each of those different touch points, can you provide something interesting that hooks the new fan or the new listener in? So say they discover you through a playlist, they click on your profile, what's on that profile, what's interesting? Is it just, you know, for a lot of artists, it's just like a handful of singles and with static imagery and then a bio, which has been written by a bio writer that's maybe 300 words that's used for the purpose of publicity, it's not an interesting or like sticky enough story for a new fan. So mm. then what do they do? They generally go to Google to look at you. And so what is that? What's populated on that front page of Google? Or they go to Instagram and it's like, okay, let me check out their vibe or their aesthetic. What's on Instagram? And you got to think about the entire ecosystem in which you as an artist and an artist brand live. And at each of those different touch points, are you providing something interesting, something of value that can hook in a new listener. Because if you just shine a lot of audience onto an artist that the foundations aren't there or it's like I guess there's nothing to sink your teeth in. Um, And I think it's a really interesting time to be a new artist and building a brand because I think about, you know, 10 years ago when blogs were the main source of discovery and what happened was when you were discovering artists through blogs your entry point into a new artist was through a story like it was through Mm -hmm. a hook and it was usually it was written by a curator whose taste was you know enough to be able to like indicate what you should and shouldn't be listening to and so a lot of those people it wasn't algorithms that were generating kind of the same z type of music it was it was real people with real taste who value art as well so I think a lot of the music that they would recommend depending on what publication they're writing for would be you know more either more experimental or be pushing the boundaries a bit and they'd be writing really interesting stories whereas now you have this environment where it's an algorithmically generated playlist that Spotify or Apple or whatever the streaming service you're listening to their primary focus is like to keep the user playing music like don't take the user out of what they're already doing Mm. so you don't hear a lot of like jarring or different or like artistic kind of everything fits tightly within a box so then to stand out from there you really have to you have to do that own storytelling that you might have got from a curator back in the day Mm. a lot of that falls on the artist to build that for themselves with the tools that are available is that what you're saying yeah or the teams that they have in place as well I think it's really important to map what a consumer journey looks like from discovering an artist on a playlist to perhaps buying a ticket or saving the CD or the album to their own playlist and then providing like interesting storytelling at each of those different points to be able to hook people in. Thinking more about the 
tension. Maybe it isn't a tension, but I think there is a contrast between like marketing to strangers and then marketing to people who are already fans of you and are already investing in you as an artist. One of the most popular theories that I still hear coming up today in terms of how artists can make a sustainable living off of their work is Kevin Kelly's 1000 True Fans theory. The theory was first published in 2008, which is over 10 years ago. So it's been around for quite a while, but the ideology behind it still feels super fresh. And it essentially claims that one can make a sustainable living just by finding 1,000 fans who are willing to pay $100 a year for your work. And that automatically leads you to a six-figure salary. And as we were talking about before, it does depend on your goals as an artist before a lot of artists like that already is quite an impressive living. And it doesn't require that many people you know, to rally around your work. So do you see the concept of marketing to strangers and catering to lighter listeners as opposed to this theory? Or maybe can they be two complements of a single strategy? Like how do you position that article you wrote in relation to this thousand true fans concept? So I think Kevin Kelly's theory was brilliant, but I think it it's often used interchangeably for fan loyalty, where it's so much more than that. It's actually a business model. And what the theory proposes is like you're an artist that aims to make a living, not a fortune. So we're not talking about top 40 acts in the Thousand True Fans theory. It also requires being paid directly by fans. So it excludes anyone signed to a label or a management firm. And then it also requires you to make a profit of $100 per fan, like a profit, not revenue. And so what that is, is like that that's an entire business model and it doesn't work for artists whose product is essentially free or like who mm. can't self-fund tours or recording or pay business associates. I think the brilliance of Kevin Kelly's theory is that it's so visual and also seemingly so attainable too because, you know, if I'm a new artist and all I've got to do is get a 1,000 true fans, that to me is very motivating and very doable. I mean, I could potentially even remember a 1,000 names mm-hmm. <laughs> or if I break it down, if I add a new fan a day, I could get there in three years kind of thing. But for a lot of artists, like especially emerging ones, like how many artists in today's climate can produce enough work per year to make $100 in profit? And like that's certainly not going to happen by streaming because then you'd be talking about generating like twelve to 16,500 streams per fan. And that's only if you retained like all of your copyrights and you didn't have to pay out any splits. Like you're just never going to lift consumption like that. In order for the thousand true fans to work is you need a product mix that allows for like high cost and premium products as well as, you know, the low cost stuff. And you also need to be producing at that rate. Um, a lot of artists go on and off cycle. They have to like go and rehearse for tours and they have to go back and write new, you know, new albums and, and stuff like that. So can you produce a product line that allows you to generate $100 per fan? I think, yeah, it, it works really well for those that retain all of their copyrights that profit directly from fans and sell directly from fans. Where the Playing for Strangers piece was written from, it's written for artists looking to like break the mainstream and also dominate pop, like the top of culture, carving out market share. So it's more about scale rather than the kind of DIY direct-to-consumer model, which is what the true fan, the thousand Kevin Kelly's work really represents. And so with marketing to, yeah, playing to strangers, if you want to grow, you need to be constantly building a pipeline of new listeners and turning them into fans with each release. Just depending on the consumption from existing fans is going to limit your potential. I think if you were to apply the thousand true fans theory to like scalability, I think you'd be quickly limited because like if you think about it, music is so dependent on trends. And so Mm. if you like a great example is like if you went back and looked at the lineup from 10 years ago for Coachella, you're going to see like I think there was like Beirut was headlining along with the Black Keys, Conor Oberst and Band of Horses. Whereas you fast forward to like 2019 and you've got a far more pop and urban lineup. So like Mm -hmm. with Childish Gambino, Janelle Monae, Solange, Ariana Grande. I think like with the exception of Tame Impala, there's like barely any guitar music. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you were to rely on say like the Thousand True Fans theory for growth, you would would look at like, you know, Beirut's February release of Gallipoli would be the biggest record of the year because they were already headlining Coachella in 2009. So I think what the thousand true fans is, is like it's recognizing those trends and being able to like tap into attract, like attracting new users. And I think also for artists, it's creatively more freeing because they're able to make that, you know, perhaps more experimental avant-garde art project that they'd thought about, or a DJ can like 
try and make go for a pop record without that fear of like alienating the core, which is an argument that you always that that would hold you back creatively. You can explore different paths because you're always appealing to new audiences and adding new fans. Yeah, I totally agree with you that to get to a point of profit just from 1,000 true fans in a streaming environment alone is nearly impossible for, you know, like almost any artist, I would say for like 99% of artists. But I do see that being possible with business models that don't rely on recorded music. Or so Mm. thinking about like live music, for instance, there has been a lot of research showing that the price of tickets has also gone up over time, even as maybe like the payout per stream isn't increasing. The value of live music continues to grow and people are in the aggregate going to more more and more concerts every year. And so they're willing to invest more in that particular revenue stream for an artist. And then I'm also thinking of sites like Patreon. So at, like at the most extreme, you have artists like Amanda Palmer. I think she's making $50,000 per project she releases just through supporters, which is like really impressive. Fantastic. Yeah. But that like the reason people are paying for that is like not just for the product, it's for like investment in the personality and like in the human being that is Amanda Palmer rather than just, you know, like paying for a song. So I feel like also like making the 1000 true fans model work requires sort of as you were getting at in terms of trying to build a wider product mix beyond just streaming alone, but yeah, like monetizing wider fandom rather than just consumption if that makes sense yeah absolutely i want to shift gears a little bit and talk about how your article about playing to strangers relates to how labels are spending money and so in response to your piece there's an artist manager named jake udell who's the founder of third brain he wrote in his newsletter that record labels are often spending around 80 to 90 percent of their marketing budgets on content alone which i found really interesting and it definitely aligns with this debatable notion that content is king Mm -hmm. in in like in music and entertainment whereas as jake wrote in many other industries that ratio is totally flipped like they're spending around 80 to 90 percent of their budget on reach rather than on production. And like even for a Super Bowl ad, you might be spending a million dollars on an ad, which is a really big budget. But in order to expand the reach on that, that can go up to five million. So that even eclipses the content creation budget alone. And given that you have experience working within a record label, I'm wondering if that is consistent with your experience in terms of there being a gap and spending on content versus reach? And if there are any situations where you think that might be justified or if you would generally encourage that to go the other way? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely consistent with my experience. So the week that I put out Playing to Strangers, um, Jake and I actually had breakfast where he was like, okay, these are all my thoughts and feelings. Um, <laughs> and we, we ended up spending like two hours talking about this. Um, so it's absolutely in line with my experience and, and my thinking as well. I think what a lot of labels fall into the trap of is, is that content is king argument where what they do is they spend a lot of money on non-working media dollars, but not enough on working media dollars. So your non-working mm-hmm. media dollars are the things like the cost of a music video, staff, like actually making the thing. And the working media dollars is like how you get that out there. So that's like media, PR, influences, partnerships, distribution. And I think the non-working dollars is a lot more creatively fulfilling because if you're looking at, you know, $75,000 music video budget, spending $75,000 on a music video is far more exciting to the artist and to the label, to be frank, than thinking about, you know, let's put that into like paid media or let's do like a homepage takeover on, you know, whatever the fader or something. I think the danger in that is that we're in a time of like infinity content. We exist in a period right now where there's 20,000 songs that are uploaded to Spotify every single day. I mean, who knows how many billions of hours are spent on YouTube and like videos that's uploaded to YouTube every year. So I think it's it's extremely limiting thinking like if you're going to build it, they're going to come and also relying on the idea that the cream always rises to the top, um, mm. which is absolutely not true. You, you need to be paid to be seen. And so 
I think it's really fascinating when you look at the advertising industry that has that totally flipped where the media agencies are the power players and they're the ones that are getting getting the things seen. And I think for music, your working media dollars isn't just a Facebook retargeting campaign or like paid social posts. It's the infrastructure about how you get that piece of content seen. So it is things like digital advertising and audio ads and, you know, YouTube pre-rolls, but it's also seeding things out with influencers, paying for partnerships, working with, yeah, particular like media and brands to get things out, paying, like mapping out the course of a song and making sure that you've got paid dollars being spent when the interest is in the track. I think the distribution is almost more powerful than the content. And especially if you look at, I mean, just to what we were talking about earlier with like playlists. Yeah, exactly. And being able to totally flip the ratio of like monthly listeners to Spotify followers, the distribution is so much more powerful than the content. I mean, the content's got to be great for sure, don't get me wrong. But um, I wish there was as much effort as you put into the creation and the concept of a music video, that creativity and that commitment being spent towards the distribution and the promotion of that content, I think, is a huge opportunity for labels. Yeah, and I think there are a couple of parts of this that just come to mind. So one, I'm curious if, if you've also experienced this too, but at least the major label level, what I've heard is that there's still a ton of marketing. I guess it depends on the artist, but in a lot of cases, there's a ton of marketing being put towards radio promotion still and like terrestrial radio. And actually that to me is the epitome of marketing to strangers. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> like, yeah, like that is a channel just to be ambient and be everywhere. Like, you know, reach everyone who happens to be driving in their car and just wants to put on music, you know, even if they have no idea like who's actually playing um, there's a lot more investment on that side of things and that hasn't really translated. The majority of marketing budgets for a lot of artists is still spent on radio versus on digital. In some ways, digital is cheaper and you don't need to spend as much to, re- to reach much wider audiences. It's just interesting to me that the dollar investment still hasn't really shifted in that sense. Yeah, I think you have more people now, like people paying for you know, third-party playlists and also people paying for... I mean, remixing too is another example of like paying for promotion, mm. biting into another artist's audience by getting them to remix tracks. Like there are creative, more creative ways that people spend. But yeah, I, I think radio promotion for sure is still no one, no one bats an eyelid. I think when the if the opportunity presents to be able to spend at radio, everyone's like, yes, yes, spend, go more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> another thing that came to mind as I was just listening to what you were saying is there's still this huge debate around whether artists should even be investing in music videos Mm. at all. And this is, this is kind of an aside, but I think it's totally related. If we think about like budgets and what's being spent on content versus on reach. And there've been a lot of artists I've either heard like speak out at conferences and other events, or even just on social media or on Twitter saying like, yeah, like don't make a music video. You're not going to see any ROI. Like if you spend like a couple thousand dollars on a video, it's, I guess, even just measuring how you might get that, you know, a couple thousands of dollars back is really difficult. But there's just a lot of skepticism around the value of that kind of content in today's day and age, where, as you said, it's kind of infinite content. Like everyone's putting out new songs and, and new videos and new visuals all the time. So I'm wondering whether you have a stance on that and whether it might be related to this gap in how people are are allocating their budgets. Like, do you see music videos as still being valuable? And if so, is there maybe a smarter way to go about marketing them and promoting them? Yeah, that actually, that actually surprises me about the skepticism towards music videos. I think the, like the skepticism I would agree. Like if you were going to spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on a, like a splashy music video that was either performance-based or narrative-based and then your plan was to chuck it up on YouTube and like cross your fingers that YouTube will playlist it or that like the core fan base is going to, you know, share it a lot, I think that that is like extremely limiting and probably a gross waste of money. But I think that video content is so important in today's environment, especially since... Instagram and YouTube are like two of the most powerful platforms for discovery. Like Instagram and music is so linked, so intertwined. Like I think it's like 44% of all Instagram users follow at least 10 verified musician accounts. 
Mm, so, and wow. then the videos and stories, Instagram stories is such a powerful tool for discovery and that's all visual. And I think visuals as well determine a lot of what the gatekeepers do. So like a lot of the vinyl buyers are looking at Instagram to see like what the aesthetic of an artist is, a new artist and like how many followers that, that they have. And that's all visual. That's not even like listening to music. Um, I think YouTube is obviously a really powerful method of um, discovery, but I think that video content is extremely important. The concept of a music video that might be like a bit of a hangover from the MTV days where you would spend hundreds of thousand dollars on a music video which would go on broadcast TV, whereas I think a lot of people still kind of follow that where they spend a lot of money on a very flashy music video, but they don't have MTV and that and that channel for distribution. They've got YouTube. And so you're applying that same kind of format to a totally different platform, whereas the things that work on YouTube are things that are like far more, you know, shareable, memeable, um, kind of interesting use of the medium rather than just like either a performance or a narrative video. So I think... I guess to answer your question, that was really it was a bit of a waffle, but um, <laughs> I think that video content is extremely important. I think that the music video format as a narrative and a, or a performance-based visual isn't enough to be either shareable or to capture any kind of moment in cultural conversation. I think you need to mm. aim for higher creativity, which would result, which would be things like interesting uses of YouTube and that platform creating content series that coaches your audience to like check in with your either Instagram or YouTube channel regularly. Yeah, I think definitely investment in content is is critical. And to tie that back to your playing to strangers piece, in that piece you give an example of this social media user who was a really big fan of an artist and ended up being like followed around all over the internet by Facebook and Instagram ads. You brought that up as an example of arguably a missed opportunity in terms of using ads to target people who are already really invested in you and listening to you and maybe are going to buy a ticket to your show. So thinking beyond streaming now and looking at social media, so Facebook, Instagram, or like video platforms like YouTube, whether it's a concrete example you have in mind or just general advice for how to market effectively to people who might not already know your music in these environments that are more visual and might not necessarily rely on recorded music alone or on a format like a playlist. Yeah, I think a couple of things. One would be looking at the, and we've spoken about this before, but looking at the um, specific platform behavior that works well, not necessarily in music, but other verticals. So like looking at things that work on YouTube from like beauty bloggers and with mm, yoga mm-hmm. instructors and, and like gamers, a lot of the same principles apply to music, which is consistency and frequency of releases and of high quality content. And then also use of the community feature, engaging with people on the platform looking at what are the specific user behaviours around, say, YouTube or Instagram or Facebook and building content plans off that to be able to satisfy Mm. those algorithms is really important. Um, I think two is finding your creative collaborator to be able to do some of this because a lot of the times, I mean, I feel sorry for artists a lot of the time in this day and age because, like, what they're very good at is songwriting and making great beats and you know making really like beautiful powerful music and then they've got to turn around and be like okay and now I've got to be on social media and I have to be an interesting personality and I've got to be like taking all these videos kind of thing like it's just it's a lot and so I think if you can find a creative collaborator who can follow you around with a video recorder um, like an iPhone and capture a lot of content and then work to chop that up and almost create a library in which that's scheduled months out is really important because it then takes a lot of the pressure off the artist to, you know, who might have been in writing sessions all day or in the studio all day and then has to turn around and, like, figure out a funny joke to tell on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you can remove that, it becomes a lot easier and um, there are so many creative and amazing people out there that would be more than willing to um, to collaborate, especially if, you know, if you're talking to existing fans or tapping into people that already follow you, being able to work with them in a more meaningful way, I think is a, is a, a good thing. So I guess that would be my two is like leveraging the existing behaviours that you know are true from other industries and then also finding 
ways to create content that isn't such a high barrier to you. This notion of creating content that is tailored to the unique user behaviors and also algorithms of these services is really interesting to me because I think going back to the streaming world now, there is a growing sense among a lot of independent artists that they feel beholden so much to streaming platforms in terms of relying so much on playlist placements, for instance, to grow their fan base and also grow their revenue to the point where it's diluting their original creative vision or it's like diluting the integrity of their product. Like, for instance, they feel pressure to cater their creative output to mood or activity playlists to the point where they feel like they're, oh, they're only creating music essentially to promote Spotify as a service or to, you know, pander to Spotify as a service as opposed to staying true to who they are. Mm. I'm wondering like how you might advise on navigating that like from an artist's perspective. So like what is a way to maximize these channels while maintaining the integrity of the story that you're trying to tell? And you already gave some good advice around thinking about like the discovery journey and sort of preparing for that instance where, you know, like a a listener might want to click through and learn more about you as an artist. But I'm wondering if you have any advice like on that front in terms of not getting to a point where you feel so beholden to these algorithms that it, you feel like it negatively colors the work that you're doing as an artist. Yeah, I mean, that sucks as a sentiment um, to have to be like creating music to promote Spotify as a service. Like that's that's awful. Um, I think that the best, my advice to artists feeling in that way would be to engineer demand in another way and not look at, say, marketing specifically on Spotify and trying to fit within existing mood and playlist but how do you create enough interest in your project or your art or your track outside of the Spotify platform and that drives people to Spotify with interest in that track and that comes from you know the real world that comes from like people seeking out Google searching for that track it's like press tv appearances and it's people just sharing things as well like or very organically like people sharing things that they really like and are interested in. And then what ends up happening is if you engineer demand, a real demand around a track or a project or an artist, then the playlist will follow because Spotify, it's in their interest to be able to surface music that people are actually interested in and that also Mm. already have recognition about because they've seen it and they're talking about it. So I would suggest that if you're feeling pressure to create music to fit into playlists, step back a second and go, well, how do we actually create demand for the project outside of that environment? And then let them help us, like let Spotify help the artist by playlisting things because it's already happening in other environments rather than looking to change their creative output into a specific genre. Mm-hmm. That's really great advice. And the last question that I wanted to ask before moving on to the overrated, underrated segment goes uh, all the way back to the study that you cited in your piece by Byron Sharp around grocery store products and how like the bottom 80% of customers were the most profitable year after year. And I know like that area of the economy is so, so different from the music industry in terms of like how people relate to certain products, uh, you know, emotionally or, or otherwise. But that finding has changed the way a lot of bigger brands in that space are approaching their strategy in terms of marketing their products and and building out their brands and maybe cultivating customer loyalty around things like Windex or, you know, specific yogurts. And I'm wondering if there's anything that comes up specifically on that front in terms of how those types of brands change their strategy that you think may be helpful for the music industry, like whether for an emerging artist or for a bigger artist trying to scale more. I think the main ones that are very natural to music and very effective is partnerships, for sure. I think Marshmallow's Fortnite concert was absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. I wish I that was my idea. It was so good. Um, but I think that is the epitome of marketing to like listeners. He played the concert in Fortnite and at any given point there was 10.7 million people watching at the one time. That's not even like the people that came in and out. That's just like people mm-hmm. on the platform watching all together. And 80% of those were not fans of Marshmallow, either weren't fans of Marshmallow or had never heard of him, which is just mm. crazy. And between that week um, that he played that Fortnite concert, his YouTube views grew by more than 100 million. 
His Instagram follow account grew by more than a million in four days. And on Twitter, during the only the day of the concert, he was mentioned over 50,000 times. So I think that partnership between Fortnite and Marshmallow is the epitome of light listener um, marketing, which is like exposing people that haven't heard of you or have a very light recall of you to your music and doing it in a really creative and compelling way that makes you want to tune in. And, and I mean, the, the results spoke for themselves. Uh, I think collaborations, you see this so much in streaming now, but like remixes, features, um, appearances in videos, appearances like support slots, all that kind of stuff is is really critical. I think a good example of that was Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile's Lot of Sea Lice album mm-hmm. and the tour that kind of came from that. There was, you know, two unlikely people collaborating together, had very similar audience. There was some overlap but not a lot of recognition against both. And then, I mean, you see that in like pop and rap, all these different features on tracks. I think that's something that is very effective right now. Broad media, so to Byron Sharp and like the advertising world, from that work, a lot of discussion came out of like retargeting campaigns and the effectiveness of micro-targeting small communities versus kind of broad cast media. So like do we spend money on retargeting or do we actually go for a TV? And Mm. so... A lot of brands started going back to like more broad-based reach, which was like the same message delivered to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, rather than retargeting stuff, which was like specific messages delivered at specific times to specific audiences. So I think for music, that's, I mean, we don't really have TV ads, but um, Mm -hmm. like billboards, press, banners online, as unsexy as they are, it's just really about like that message frequency um, and getting it out there. Uh, And then I think the last one would be festivals. In festivals, you're playing to a captive audience of people who actually spend money on music and which is evident by the fact that they buy a ticket for perhaps a couple of hundred bucks. They're buying merch to to a lot of different artists and they go to a lot of different shows and you have the opportunity to be able to play to these people. To sum that up, it's like partnerships, collaborations, broad-based media and um, festivals is like the key ones. Yeah, and with the Fortnite and Marshmallow example, I definitely agree that that's like a classic example of catering to lighter listeners and that 80% of users in that game at that time had never heard of Marshmallow. But at the same time, people who are playing Fortnite are very heavy users in a different way. Like they're they're probably, a lot of them are playing Fortnite every single day and they're like really engaged. Like it's not like they're maybe just like hopping into Fortnite and then never going again. Or like my impression is that the primary generation of people who are playing Fortnite, like socialize within Fortnite. Like that is a lot of their ways, yeah, of like, you know, hanging out with their friends after school, the same way that people might be even just like hanging out on like Messenger or like having a Messenger group. It's just like a very tangible and real and loyal social environment. Even if they might have not known about Marshmallow at the time, they were already really engaged and like really leaning in in some other way, which I think was a perfect opportunity for an artist like Marshmallow to capitalize on that attention. I guess the user attention was the opposite of fickle. It just happened to be focused primarily on a different product. And so, yeah, it was really smart for Marshmallow to partner with that. Yeah. And what I mean is like it was for light listeners of Marshmallow, like definitely not light yeah, users yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. of Fortnite. But, um, yeah, I thought it was just I thought it was absolutely bloody brilliant. Yeah, definitely. So for the overrated and underrated segment, we just have one piece of music news to talk about today but I think it's I think there's so many different layers to it and so the one that I have in mind I don't know if you saw that bands in town bought hype bought a music think tank oh, okay no I didn't say that okay I've been I just moved into a new apartment so I've been doing nothing but um moving okay <laughs> <laughs> no no worries uh, but yeah they just a couple of days ago they acquired both of those publications and so I see them as a mix of like aggregators of music news and then in the case of Hypebot they republish a lot of how-to articles or more like yeah like advice articles catering to independent and DIY artists there are so many points that come to mind for me around this piece of news but the two main ones one being a writer I'm thinking a ton about just like what the right business model is for digital media, especially for like smaller blogs and how it's really, really difficult in today's day and age to turn a profit, especially for publications like Hypebot and Music Think Tank. 
that I think were running primarily on advertising. And as we saw with the HuffPo layoffs, with the BuzzFeed layoffs, a business model that relies primarily on advertising, even for like the biggest brands, like BuzzFeed was very much seen as like a, a model for the future of digital media. And they ended up having to cut a ton of their staff. And so like across the digital media spectrum, you have publications facing these issues and music certainly is no exception. So that to me is like one point. Another point is the fact that Bands on Town, which is not an editorial company at all, like now owns these media companies that are aimed at providing some sort of advice and market intelligence for a very specific community of people in music. I had written about this in my newsletter a couple of weeks ago, but I'm noticing that more and more companies in music are trying to position themselves as competitors in the realm of education and in the realm of empowering indie artists. So like Spotify publishes quite regularly on their Spotify for Artists blog, and they're hiring like a whole third party editorial agency to manage that. And AWOL has a pretty impressive education blog. I know a lot of other streaming services and especially distribution services as well, publish blogs pretty regularly like CD Baby and TuneCore. And in a world where the notion of being DIY is really celebrated, and like independence is definitely celebrated and idealized or framed as sort of the goal for an artist. A lot of companies are like framing their content marketing around that. Like we are we are the best resource to empower you to be as independent as possible. And I think this example of bands in town buying out companies like Hypebot and Music Think Tank that have that positioning, I think it's definitely part of this trend. And I think it's one of the, I would say they're the most high profile company in the live music space that's doing this. I've seen this trend more in the streaming side than on the live side, but I think they definitely won't be the last. That's it. so that's such an interesting perspective. My brain went far more cynical and I was like, okay. <laughs> like you 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 got like you were able to draw a lot more out of it than I was. I <laughs> was like, okay, well, this is a be- this is a, such a commodity website, Bands in Town. It provides pretty much one single use case, which is like, is what concerts are going on around Nimi or like how can I buy tickets? And so right. I would imagine their their analytics looks like person comes through Google, but gets what they need and then leaves. And I think mm. what they're probably trying to do is keep people around longer on the website and then mm. so they can either sell ads or sell advertising opportunities and make more money that way because it's just, it's, it's honestly, it's just, a, it's a, there's so many other websites that do exactly what Bands in Town does. So by buying Hypebot and Music Think Tank, they're providing a content that hopefully can help seed out their website in more environments than just like going from like a Google search to a uh, .com. Mm. It's like can capitalizes on social media and like sharing of those articles. But then it also hopefully for them means that users are going to spend more time on the website by going into different articles and article pages, not just like going, buying the tickets or seeing the show that they getting that information and leaving. Um, which will then allow them to sell advertising more. <laughs> so yeah, I was thinking of like what are bands and towns top competitors. And I guess it depends on yeah how you frame the company, but yeah, you know, one of them like might actually be Ticketmaster in the sense that I've definitely been in situations yeah where like I discover a show on Bands in Town and then end up buying on Ticketmaster and Bands in Town doesn't totally. really yeah they don't have the upper hand in that situation at all. And then another one of their competitors just in the discovery front is Songkick, which Warder Music bought a couple of years ago, maybe just last year. But yeah, I also am not like Songkick definitely is still around, but it also has a very similar issue. Like it's not I don't really see where it's going as a standalone business. Or I guess it isn't a standalone business now because now it's like part of a more integrated strategy within a record label. But yeah, it's interesting that Bands in Town is in like an acquisition state rather than a selling state. Although I definitely I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if another company bought them up eventually. I guess we'll see how this goes. But yeah, yeah, I think for ticketing websites, they're such a commodity. And if you were to go up against Ticketmaster, who has like all the money in the world, then you've got to be think- thinking mm-hmm. about like how do you create a community that makes people want to buy tickets from you and not from like you know. Ticketmaster or Eventbrite or like any of the other ones so mm. I think that, that that's probably like undermining a lot of the the acquisition of it Mm-mm. yeah definitely great well so just to close off the episode I don't know if there's anything 
in particular that you would want to share that you're working on or like where can people find you on social media? I know you also have a newsletter that you write. Yeah, sure. So I have a newsletter that I write, Deep Cuts, um, which is about music marketing and music strategy. And it is really written for mostly label and management marketers as well as music companies as well who want to express, like view their campaigns more creatively and maybe integrate more innovation and technology into the way that they approach out marketing artists, building artist brands and also promoting records. Um, so that's Deep Cuts and you can find that. I don't actually have a website, but um, you'll find <laughs> that in my Twitter bio. I'm just like at Amber Horsburgh. Um, and what I'm working on at the moment, I just moved to LA from New York and I'm consulting now for labels and, and artists directly on how to market their releases. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. And you can, yeah, hit me up on Twitter at Amber Horsburgh. Great. Thank you, Amber. This is a great conversation. No worries. Thank you for having me, Sherry. Thank you so much for listening to episode four of the Water and Music podcast. If you like what you hear, I'd greatly appreciate you giving me a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which will be a huge help with discoverability. You can also follow the podcast on Spotify or on whatever other listening platforms you prefer. And again, if you're interested in giving any kind of financial support, you can fund this podcast on Patreon for as low as $1 a month by visiting patreon.com slash sherryhu. Thanks a ton to Mina for that intro and outro music for this episode. Again to Amber Horsburgh for the awesome conversation and to all of you for your support. Until next time.